spend time studying the culture, do some reading on the differences between your culture and their culture, you've got to change because Lord knows 40 million people in the country you're going to aren't changing. Hello, everybody. Mike Payton with the EOS Leader Podcast. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with a truly global leader, John Makarian, the founder of Expatland Global Network and CST Tax Advisors. The Global Network is a business dedicated to serving the complex needs of the 244 million people in the world who are living and working abroad. Born in Calcutta, India, John moved to Australia as a boy and ultimately went to school in London. So it's no surprise he's been fascinated by the complexities of international tax and global mobility for most of his life. At the ripe old age of 27 in 1992, John left Deloitte, Australia and formed CST Tax Advisors. He opened his first of 30 international offices in 2004 in Singapore where he's joining us from today. Good evening, John, and welcome to the show. G'day, Peyton. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm fantastic, and I hope you're doing well as well. Uh, Let's jump into it. You have, uh, as I was reading your bio, and your story is one of the more fascinating, intricate stories. And I just want you to take us back to the very beginning of your entrepreneurial journey. Uh, What motivated you? What were some of the key decisions you made? And how have you enjoyed the ride? Yeah, I don't know if you want to go back to selling lemonade on the footpath, but <laughs> I might just bring it to the leaving Deloitte and starting my business and just try and save you 18 years. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I realized pretty quickly that I wasn't cut out to work the big four triangle in the accounting space. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I wanted to work in international tax, but work for myself. And I saw uh, a lot of my friends heading overseas to London, to Asia, to the US. And I thought, yeah, well, I can help these guys. And I, and I had a wide contact network. So I thought, yeah, I'll just start. I'll put up a shingle and I'll start being an entrepreneur with, mm-hmm. with having some sort of an idea what that meant. That's right. That's right. When did you realize you had built an organization? This is a very common theme on this show is, is you start serving people and then one day you wake up and you're signing 40 paychecks. Uh, yeah, I think, um, I think employee number one, I still remember her name. She won't mind me saying it. It was, it was Vicki Hoffman. It was, uh, 1994 and I had employee number one mm. and I thought, wow, okay, now I actually have an organization, somebody that's working other than me. And I can literally be sitting down at the coffee shop across the street and stuff is going on. And that was a, you know, when you've been an employee, that's an interesting realization that someone you're paying is upstairs doing work and you're not doing it, but yeah. stuff's happening. Yeah. So I think that was probably it for me in 1994. Yeah. Let's give the listeners who are unfamiliar with global mobility some insight into what CST Tax Advisors does and, and what the expat land global network is all about. Uh, yeah. So CST is a what I call a, a, a global mobility tax firm. Offices in Singapore, Sydney, LA, and London on the tax side. We help people with their Australian tax, for example, 
and also their Singapore tax or their US tax and their UK tax. Mm -hmm. So the tax from the country that they're leaving and the tax in the country they're arriving to. So we integrate the cross-border tax solution. And quite often you have people landing in a city looking around for someone to do their taxes. And when they find someone, that person's only ever done the domestic tax of the country they're in mm -hmm. and doesn't really have much of a feel for the country the person's come from or international tax. So then integration is really poor and a lot of mistakes get made. Mm -hmm. So we focus on helping people seamlessly integrate two tax systems together or as seamlessly as possible. And the Australian tax system and the American tax system have some pretty jagged edges, I can tell you. <laughs> jagged edges might be a synonym for either tax system, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, correct. So, uh, so that's CST. And then the Expatland Global Network was really born out of the tax practice when I realized that, you know, when I moved to Singapore in March 2004, I had more in common with my Dutch neighbor than I did with a lot of my Australian mates who never left Sydney. And we were all adjusting to finding new service providers, trying to settle in who's a good insurance guy, who's a good banker, how do we find a home? And so I realized that there's a chronic shortage of help out there to help people moving find trusted service providers. So in 2015, I wrote a book called Expat Land and I got it into my head that I would solve the problem of people moving around by building what I call E-teams in a bunch of cities around the world and, and bringing professionals together who wanted to work together, kind of like a football team. And then they would serve the client who, the, who they would all know and they'd work uh, cooperatively together. And then of course, LA would work with the London team and the London team would work with the Sydney team and, and so on and so forth. So we'd end up building a global community of a few thousand people who want to work collaboratively together. Now we're not there yet, but we're, we're well on the way. That's terrific. That's terrific. Thank you for the background. What's one of the early successes you remember convincing you that you were on the right path? Yeah, I would probably have to say that tax was my passion. And so topping tax at university sent me the message that, okay, I've got a knack for this. And I look at tax like chess. So, you know, I, I knew the game and I could play the game. So I, I'd run home and I'd, I started, I mean, this will sound potentially weird, but that's okay. I, I started, you won't be I started, the first, John. Well, no, I started, I actually read my first tax almanac when I was 11. Mm. And it was talking about places like Cayman Islands and Liechtenstein and mm. Luxembourg. And I, and I was 11. So I've, I've been reading tax books when I was 11. So when I topped the tax course, at my university, I thought, yeah, okay, I'm onto something here. Uh, I've got this game down. And then, of course, I, I got a job, you know, one of the best firms in the city, and, and I was away. So, I mean, I think that's when I knew tax was going to be the first mine that I would mine, so to speak. Yeah, that's great to hear. Do you recall as a boy noticing someone who was leading and your first impression of what a leader is and how they work and, and how did that make you feel? Yeah, very clearly. Uh, it, it was one of my dad's groomsmen. My dad was schooled in, in India and 
one of his groomsmen was a guy who worked for the United Nations and he, he was a chartered accountant or a CPA mm. and he was head of internal audit. And, and, and I knew that every time we went to his house, he was telling me that he'd just come back from Harare or he'd just come back from Nigeria or he'd just come back from another country. And it sounded so exciting. And he was running the audit program. And, you know, I was like an eight year old kid thinking, wow, this auditing sounds really exciting. And wow, being a chartered accountant, they must fly everywhere. So I think I want to be a chartered accountant when I grow up. So what did I realize? I didn't realize that John, of course, John Lucas is his name. He was an early inspiration. I didn't realize, of course, that most chartered accountants do not fly around the world three different countries in a month and that auditing in fact is not the most exciting thing in the world to do but yeah he was a leader that inspired me and i've always thought that good leaders have to inspire and that's kind of what 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 i've always found actually what what was it that he was doing that you found so inspiring did he have a way about him or a he tell these wonderful stories about how he led a team and how 200 jeeps were supposed to be somewhere but they weren't somewhere, uh, you know, in this in this country. And then he and his team would have to go around and literally find the jeeps at the houses where they weren't supposed to be and bring them back to the government bases mm-hmm. where they had. And so his his style was very engaging, and the way he would you know motivate his team to go and recover property, and he made auditing sound fun. Mm-hmm. And he talked about, you know, I mean, you're an eight eight year old kid, but he talked about how he had this team of thousands of people around the world, basically tracking aid money. And I thought, wow, they're giving out all this money and then someone's got to manage those programs yeah. and then inspire the people to collect it and track it. And I thought, wow, this, this, is, this is like amazing. Hmm. So I was taken by that style that he had. And of course, you know, as I got older, I, I had other leaders and, and influences, but he was one of the early ones. And have you been able to emulate his storytelling style and his ability to inspire? Well, I'd like to think I'm as good a storyteller as he is, if, if not better. <laughs> I think that telling stories is a way of engaging people. Mm-hmm. And so one of the early uh, mentors I had was a guy in Melbourne. Uh, his name's Tony. He was in financial advisory. And he was a devotee of Dan Sullivan and the strategic yeah. coach. So Tony really taught me how to do strategic selling and how to tell a story and how to motivate and that the importance of connecting and finding something to connect with, connect with somebody any which way you can. But once you've connected, that's the first bridge towards making a sale or or delivering an idea. And if you can't connect, then that's not happening. So yeah, storytelling is a big part of what, what we do. That's right. Along the journey, have you noticed anyone leading that wasn't doing it particularly well? Yes. Uh, I had a uh, business associate some years ago who had a fairly large business, but I think ultimately it ended up failing because primarily he was very self-absorbed and whilst he pretended to care about his people, it was words. It it wasn't action. Hmm. So... I could see that that style of leading, it was every, everything had to revolve around him and he would just flog his people, work them extremely hard, churn them through, bring in new ones, churn them through. And ultimately 
the business just imploded because it couldn't sustain itself. Yeah, he couldn't keep crushing enough people as he crushed people through the <laughs> in the business. He couldn't get enough people through the front door. So yeah. they were all part of his life support system. So that wasn't really a good way of leading. Certainly not sustainable and difficult to sleep at night, in my humble opinion. So, yeah. John, how would the people that you're leading on a day-to-day basis refer to you? What are the adjectives they'd use to describe you? Maybe that you're proud of. Let's start there. Yeah, I was going to say, that's an interesting question. Look, I think they would say I lead by example. I think they would say I have vision and that I'm prepared to go the distance. Uh, I would think they would say I don't ask them to do anything that I don't do myself. And I think they would say that I care about them. Mm. And if, I get, if I've got a problem and I can help, I, I will help and go beyond the normal employer, employee, like their problem at a personal level will become mine if I can help it. Yeah. And those are attributes you can't fake. And I was listening very carefully there. There's no technique in there. You, genuine caring for people is not something you can put on for sure. No, there are people and an app as good as you are. You're, yeah. You know, what is a business? A business yeah. is people. So, Is there any description uh, somebody you're leading might give that, that you want to work on or that you hope to get better at? Yeah, I think my passion, I can be a bit full on at times. I can be a certain type of crazy. <laughs> Could you be more specific? <laughs> yeah. I can be a certain type of crazy, right? I mean, I mean, I will WhatsApp somebody at 1 a.m. because I'm still up and I'm thinking about it. But my direct reports kind of, I don't expect them to answer me. But if a ting goes off, then they just remember that they haven't left their phone on silent. Yeah. Um, so, so, so he's hit me again. Yeah, and because I oh, tried, that's John. You know, yeah, that is John. So I, I feel a certain amount of empathy with Klinger from MASH. At times. So I don't know what else to say. If that encapsulates it, if, if that, anyone knows. Well, yeah. so so I'm of an age where that invoked exactly what you intended to mean. But for our listeners who didn't, Klinger was always the poor person wanting to bring discipline to chaos. If I'm yeah. catching your drift. Yeah, 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 good stuff. And wore interesting clothes. <laughs> yes, he did wear interesting clothes. I want to talk about the global nature of your work, and and you've certainly lived and and worked all over the world. Do you notice any important cultural differences that influence the way effective leadership is carried out from one region or country to the next? That's a great question. I was frankly blind to it for a number of years. And I think it's common when you go from one country and try and do business in another country, you just roll in and you think, well, I speak Australian, they speak English. I'm just going to roll in and try and present my ideas the same way that I do to an Australian audience. Right. And then they're sitting there and they're smiling, but they're not actually listening. And then you're wondering, why am I actually not connecting here? Mm. And the power of culture was something taught to me by one of my professors at INSEAD, who actually is from, I'm going to say Minnesota, but I think she, the lady fell in love with a French guy and then, and then went and started uh, analyzing culture and uh, developed a, an interesting book called The Culture Map. And really what that work showed me and when I, when I studied it at INSEAD was across eight to 10 measures, you can plot, a hundred different nationalities hmm. 
And across the, a measure like trusting, giving negative feedback, uh, forming judgments, trusting that different cultures will be at different places on the spectrum. So Australians and Americans tend to speak very directly. Singaporeans and Japanese will speak indirectly. And that's just not a criticism. It's just a statement of fact. Right. So if you're going to roll into Singapore or Japan and you're going to speak very directly, what they're just going to listen to you, but they're not actually going to answer you directly. Mm-hmm. And so by not understanding the culture of where you're going or the culture of, the, of how they look at these, these measures, you're going to fail dismally. And without meaning to, there are certain cities in the, in the US, and let me just leave it at that, where a yes does not mean a yes. And then there's other cities where a yes means hell yes. Yeah. So we, we all know what I'm saying, and that's within one country. So when you actually cross borders and you go to, and Erin was her name, Erin said there's a lot of things that you've got to absorb when you're trying to message and communicate. And if you don't study the culture going in, you're going to make some horrible mistakes mm-hmm. and cost yourself a lot of money and progress. Yeah, so so uh, it, th- that underscores the motive for my question because you're working with professionals who may work in three to six to eight different cultures in their lifetime, often as leaders, because if you're moving around the globe, you're leading people typically. So to the leader who is encountering a culture different than his or her own, what advice would you give to help us translate the way we lead in the U.S. to the way we might lead abroad? Yeah, I'd liken it to understanding whether the person is a peach or a coconut. If a person is a peach, uh, you'll make good progress busting through the skin till you get down to the seed. Then no matter what you do, you will not crack through that seed. If the person's a coconut, it'll take you a while to crack through the shell. But when you do, you're into the fruit. Now, a lot of the East Mm. European countries, I'm thinking Hungary, I'm thinking Poland, I'm thinking Slovakia, they're all very stone-faced, and I love a lot of these people, so it's not negative. But they will just give you a very deadpan. And you've got to do a lot of work to get in there. And if you just roll in with it like an Australian or an American, nice and direct and saying, look, do this, and then you fly off, and then you come back six weeks later and nothing has changed, and you go, but come on, guys, I said do this. And they're going to go, well, I'm glad you said do this, but that's great, you, you left and we're just not doing it. And what, well, why aren't you doing it? Well, you, you didn't connect with us. Like you, you didn't put the work in, you didn't see the world through our, our eyes. You, you didn't break it down. You didn't get absorbed with us. So you just can't roll into France, tell a group of 200 French people, that's the Aussie way, that's the American way, just do this and then fly off again. Hey, presto, that's what they're gonna do. That is not what they're going to do. So I feel like the first thing I would tell the CEO, spend time studying the culture, do some reading on the differences between your culture and their culture. If you're trying to get them to do something, work out which way you express things and what are some of the signals you've got to send to show them that you actually care about them, which could be quite unusual or uncommon in your home jurisdiction. But you've got to change because Lord knows 40 million people in the country you're going to aren't changing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what do you do when you're encountering a coconut that has a peach inside of it? 
how do you break? <laughs> because yeah. there are some cultures where that's the way it works as well, yeah. right? Where the outer shell is tough and, and then the inner pit is impenetrable as well. Have you encountered cultures like that and and any advice for those of us? Yeah, who yeah I'm glad you asked. I have because I was born in Calcutta, so I can actually mm. say this and my friends will understand. Certain parts of India, let's leave it at that, they will only do business with certain people from the same culture. And that's just obvious. So they will let, I will get to a certain point and that's fine, but I will go no further. So I've just got to understand that in my relationship with them, I've got to set a realistic expectation and bond with them, but get to a certain point in the journey and then go, okay, to make any more progress, I've actually got to bring in somebody from the same community and they actually then will be able to go further because their grandfather knew the other guy's grandfather and the mm -hmm. tie is stronger. So you can actually go into the deepest level, but you've got to have the right tools in the toolbox. Well, and I, I, th I think that's it. I think acknowledging the battles that cannot be won earlier in the game is a big part of this, right? Is instead of beating your forehead against a brick wall over and over and over again and failing repeatedly, recognize you've got to try a different approach and engage different people. And that's a big part of figuring this out. Well, I think as Clint said, every man's got to know his limitations, right? <laughs> yes, he does. Well said, well said. What do you think the greatest global weakness from a leadership standpoint is today? We've been talking a lot about leadership on a global stage over the course of the last couple of years in the global response to the pandemic. And it's a topic that I'm fascinated with. What, what do you think the world needs to get better at from a leadership standpoint? Empathy, hmm. plain and simple. There's a complete lack of empathy, not only within countries, exacerbated by the current crisis, We've seen examples of that. There were two Aussie women, and I'm an Aussie, it's on the news, rolling around, beating the living tripe out of each other over a 12-pack of toilet paper mm. because one woman thought she was going to run out and the other woman was trying to grab it, and then they got into a mall on the floor of an Australian supermarket. So we see lack of empathy and care everywhere. But I think obviously... The, the G20, obviously very wealthy, and then the, the, the G, the rest, are not. And we're seeing a huge amount of inequality. So I think mm -hmm. but that all is driven by a lack of, a lack of empathy. Mm. And I feel like that's the greatest problem facing the world. Is there a way forward? Do you see us injecting empathy in leadership around the globe? Why are we stuck? That's a very interesting question. It goes to deep-rooted senses of, of identity and the globalization project. So if my neighbor is from the Philippines, for example, or from Mexico or from France, suddenly I have a lot more empathy with somebody who's from Mexico or France or the Philippines. Why? Mm -hmm. Because on an Australian street, my neighbor is from a place that I didn't know before. So uh, I feel like technology is helping us break down national boundaries. And I think that as interesting as it sounds, the digital world is actually helping with that because mm -hmm. gamers and gaming, you know, we're forming all sorts of new friendships with people. There's a, there's a gaming team that my nephew's a part of, you know, his mates on the other side of the city, but it could just have easily be on, on the other side of the world. Yeah. 
So I feel we have to work on it. I feel like we have to have leaders who realize that 99% of the world are generally worse off than they are. So, and I think the younger generation are working towards that. So I'll stay off any political topics, but I'll, I will say that I think younger people are doing a better job of it than the, you know, the boomers like me, uh, last year of the baby boom, right? So yeah. I think they will do better than we did. Yeah. And I share your hope for the impact of digital connections on globalization, because I think travel is a barrier. The If you never leave your own cocoon, you never see the need to empathize with people who are different. Correct. Let's turn back to your organizations and your leadership, John. You're a visionary. You've uh, grown an organization that's complex. I know you've worked with two professional EOS implementers on two continents. And so I'm curious about the impact implementing EOS in your businesses has had on your leadership style. Look, it's been, it'd be hard to overstate the impact because while Dan and Alexander are pretty different individuals, mm -hmm. Dan Davis and Alexander Seely, while, while they're quite different individuals, their passion for the subject is the same. The introduction of the technology of EOS to leadership teams that hadn't done the pre-work that I'd done with Dan Sullivan and the strategic coach back in the 90s revolutionized those teams. So EOS took a group of people who had sort of heard about management stuff in the expat land team and basically said, well, look, here's a discipline, here's a framework, here's an infrastructure, radical transparency, comfortable being uncomfortable, GWC, mm -hmm. all those great tools. If you actually run your business along these lines, it's pretty hard to, I won't say hard to get it wrong because of course you can make mistakes, but the identification of what is important immediately pops up and where the focused effort needs to be immediately pops up and just people get held accountable. So it's turned the tax practice and, and Gino said that he, you know, he didn't think that EOS was suited to an accountancy practice and we actually proved him wrong, which I don't know, He's from Detroit. He probably wouldn't even agree he was wrong. But <laughs> he, uh, he, look, he kindly wrote the forward to my second book. And basically what it's done is give us a platform to take the accounting firm model global. And not many accountants go global uh, with the same ownership. We've done that. And Traction has been a big part of that. And so, yeah, I think it's hard to overstate the impact that EOS had on our two businesses. Nice. Is there any uh, leadership move you've made, decision you've made, or action you took that, that you wish you had a do-over? Over nearly 30 years, there's been a few, <laughs> quite a few. But By hey, the way, I, I had one guest say, we don't have enough time for that, Peyton. Next question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, 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 but this is, a, this is one that sticks. I took a really nice guy, a wife and two kids, and I moved them to a country to expand and build and run a practice and set up a practice. And 18 months later, I, I had to shutter not mm. only the practice, but end up firing the guy. Mm. The fault was mine. There was no GWC. Well, there was some G, a bit of W, but probably no C. And so really I got that wrong. It was a bit of an awkward conversation because I had to fly up there and terminate. And that's never fun. No. Um, but but it was lack of planning. Yeah. 
to take the blame for that one. Yeah. Appreciate you sharing that. For the listener who's not familiar with GWC, gets it, the genetic encoding to be great at the job, wants it, springs out of bed every day wanting to excel and capacity to do it, the acquired ability, the education, training, experience, intellectual and emotional maturity, that wasn't there. And you wish you would have known that before you made the decision. Yes. Correct. Yeah. 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 But, uh, but that was, yeah, that was a learning. That yeah. was a learning. Good stuff. All right. I'm going to wrap here and, and let you get on with your evening. One last question. Talking to the young John Makarian who wants to be the best leader he can be, what piece of advice would you go back in time and give yourself? <laughs> this is almost, we don't have enough time for it. But the one <laughs> piece of advice I would give myself would be, don't try to be great because of the money. Hmm. Money comes, money goes. Try to be great because you've got a passion for what it is you want to be great doing mm -hmm. and that you would get out of bed every day and do it and you don't regard it as work because if you regard it as work you'll be good at it but you'll never be great at it mm -hmm. great advice great advice john thank you how can our listeners learn more about your organizations and about you if they so choose yep they can come to www expatland.com and connect with John Macarian and they'll find me. Uh, that's awesome. Thank you. So uh, once again, Mike Payton with the EOS Leader, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with John as much as I did. This is all about becoming the best leader you can be every day. And I think John gave us a dozen really tasty nuggets that'll help us on that journey. Have a great day. Thank you again, John. If you're running your business on EOS, you know we value open and honest feedback. So please open up your podcasting app and leave us a review. Let us know if there's anything we can do to make the podcast better or help you along on your own entrepreneurial leadership journey.